you know, as an immature man in my 30s, I thought that asking for help was a sign of weakness. And it wasn't until I got a chance to spend time around world-class CEOs, they just had a whole different frame of mind around what success looked like. And it, you know, success was orchestrating or facilitating the output of others. I really became very comfortable to see others succeed on my team without me taking a victory lap. I was taking a victory lap in my mind because I was super happy for them. And I cared really deeply about their careers, so much so that I tried to become a better and better coach over time so that I could help them get better, realizing that their success would lead to my success. Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Speaking of world-class companies, there are more incredible startups in the Kleiner portfolio than I've ever seen. When I was operating, I would have begged to be in some of these companies. If you're listening, and we don't do sponsorships on this show, so I figured I'd use this opportunity. If you're listening and you are inspired by the stories of my guests and you want to find the next incredible ride for you, reach out to me. Let's find an amazing job in the Kleiner portfolio. Now let's get to the episode. Mark, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot, Jubin. Great to be here. I do all of these things to get going in the exact same way, and I always screw them up in some way or another, never the exact same way, but in one way or another. So why don't I try my hand at reading your background back to you? When I screw it up, you tell me what I did wrong, and then we can use that as a jumping off point. Sounds good. You went to York University. You got your BA in econ business. Then you went to Cisco Good time to be at Cisco. Spent four years there from 97 to 01. Then you went to Radio Frame Networks, VP of Marketing and Biz Dev. Spent two years doing that. Lucent Technologies, the EVP of Wireless Sales. Spent about a year there. Then you had your career-making run at F5, EVP of Worldwide Sales from 04 to 2012. Then you went to Palo Alto Networks. You spent first four years as the EVP of Sales. Then the president the last two years one and a half of which I was there for, maybe a year. Then you got on a couple boards, Extra Hop, Miss Systems, Avi, Boys and Girls Club. You went to Anaplan. You spent eight months there as the chief growth officer and then another eight months probably transitioning into the next role and, and helping them transition into who the right person was. And then now you're at Alteryx. And I always mispronounce that. Is that right? Did I? It is. Yeah, okay, Al okay, Alteryx, okay, okay. Yeah. So you were actually on the board of Alteryx first. Is that right? You did that since 2018. And then they, they lured you in that way. You were uh, on the board of Cloudflare for the last couple of years. We were just talking about Chris Merritt, who was a guest of the show. And then you're an advisor to TPG, et cetera, et cetera. How did I do? You know, I love the way you started in 97, inferring or implying that I, I graduated sometime <laughs> near there. But the reality was I graduated in 84 and at a, a couple of really good sales roles at tech companies. But yeah, Cisco clearly was my first window into, you know, at least from a mid-level management standpoint, long-term sustained hyper-growth. And it was, a, it was a very good run. Can I ask you some personal questions before we dive into yeah, it? Yeah, you bet. I like to go into the archives on some of this stuff to really figure out my guests. You were born in Belfast, Ireland. No accent. Thankfully, my dad got an education mm -hmm. and got us the hell out of there uh, when I was one. So it was a tough swim with those chubby little arms, but... <laughs> And then uh, he moved you to Canada. And I've heard you say that he got an education, was working, trying to take care of the family. You were doing the same. You worked through high school and college yourself to pay for it. Is that right? I did. Yeah. My dad was an engineer back when engineers did make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And so they couldn't afford to put me through college. So I had to work retail, you know, in the evenings and weekends during the school year and then full time in the summer at a golf courses or at bike shops. Speaking of golf, so I've heard you say my golf game is similar to my professional game. I overprepare, geek out, and hate to lose. And right before we started recording, I said, you know, I just figured you hadn't listened to any of the episodes. You know, you walk in, you see of this public company and whatever. You're like, I listened to eight of them. <laughs> so anyway, it reminded me of this quote. How much does this game of golf and the preparation and the execution of it resemble the way that you think about what you do for a living? I think it's a lot. In golf, it's about math. It's physics and geometry and applying those to your golf swing and your setup, but mostly preparation. I think, you know, in sales, once I started learning that the more you prepare, the better you're going to be conditioned to be able to solve 
customers' problems. Mm -hmm. And for me, preparing was learning about their business, learning about their business problems, uh, areas where we could help apply technology to solve and better their problems. So it's a great parallel. And and unfortunately, it's about the only thing I can do these days with with my broken down uh, Canadian former hockey player body. So you're saying you're not playing hockey anymore? Unfortunately, no, I haven't had time to do that in, in probably probably 15 years. <laughs> well, I wouldn't guess it. I would not want to be getting checked by you in a ring. I'll tell you that much. That sounds miserable. I have a couple more questions for you on background stuff. One of my previous guests, it was the employee number seven at Snowflake, Chris Degman. Chris, yeah, yeah. 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 Do you know Chris? He's great. I've met him once, but but I, I really enjoyed that podcast. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Great dude. I say thanks. Like he did everything. I didn't do anything. I just said a few things. And you know, there's a part in that episode where he says that he's on a quarter to quarter contract, like now, you know, with Sloopman. Yeah. And all of my guests from previous episodes called me, like that resonated so deeply with me. And I think the components of the show that resonate the most with people are when like things didn't go according to plan. You look at your resume and it's like F5, Palo Alto Networks, these insane runs. And I'll tell you, like for me, I admired you. Like I saw you on stage at sales kickoff. This is Mark Anderson. And it was a little bit cool and refreshing and is a weird way to put it, but to see that it didn't work out at Anaplan. I would love to know more about that. Did you pick wrong? Was it the right opportunity? Like, no, what? actually, listen, Frank was on, on our board at Palo Alto Networks yeah. and Frank Calderoni. And he was a friend. And he just asked me to help him out, mm-hmm. you know, kind of rejigger their go-to-market. So mm-hmm. it was never really a long-term gig. It was... Mm-hmm originally going to be interim and and part-time. And I think when I got in there, I realized, you know, there's Mm -hmm. dozens of people I had to hire and an entire go-to-market to work with the team to transform. So I was in and out there in a very good way. It was, it was always a time-bound deal. You know, at the time I I still wasn't sure what I wanted to do because, you know, I left Palo Alto Networks thinking that I was done and then started getting intellectually curious and Frank asked for some help. So I was more than happy to help him. Palo Alto, you left in late 2018. You're ready to hang it up. You're going to work on your golf game. Yeah, that's what I thought. You know, I'd been super fortunate to have thousands of people help make me look good and successful in that role. And it wasn't in the cards for me to become CEO. They made the choice of bringing on Nikesh Arora, who's, who's done a great job since then. And I thought that I'd ticked all the boxes far outstripping my own expectations as a poor kid from the wrong side of the tracks in in Northern Ireland. So, but, you know, I realized that I need to have, as Guy Ritchie would say, my my dirty little fingers and a bunch of dirty little pies. (laughs) What was like the, I'm similar to you, like, I can't imagine, I love working. Like, I enjoy the process of it. Was your wife like, Mark, you got to get the hell out of the house. You could see you get Nancy walking around. Are there companies that would catch your eye that you know, you'd be at dinner with her and you just like start obsessing over like, what was that process or feeling like of getting reintroduced to the idea that maybe you're going to do this again? And by the way, not only have you done it again, you've cranked it up all the way, right? So I don't know, how'd that go? Yeah, you know, I think- Does the question make sense? Yeah, it totally does. I mean, you know, something I, I thought about every day and so super fortunate to, first of all, have the option to hang it up and play golf. And, and I, I enjoy playing golf every day, but you have to understand, we spend the winters in the Palm Springs area in a golf course community and you know, realized that I needed something to distract me more than, you know, golfing. And I was very active with Lightspeed. I, I really enjoyed- mentoring and coaching and, and putting money to work in areas that were exciting to me. But at the end of the day, I didn't own something. I didn't feel ultimately accountable. Yeah. And I realized I missed that. At least I wasn't able to replace that with with something like golf or, or investing. So so it was sort of like a buildup, if you will. And when Frank called me up, I was more than happy you know, to pitch in and help yep. there. And then the pandemic hit. And it even got worse because yeah. now I'm sort of stuck in a house and for three or four months, I couldn't play golf. Yeah. The story that I tell myself and my friends of like, when we all make a bunch of money, we're going to be just fine spending four to six hours of our day on the golf course is not as fulfilling as I'd like it to be. Well, I think it can be, but I think you have to have a plan. Yeah. Guys that are wired like us, yeah. I, I think absent of a plan, it's pretty hard. You're always looking for something to really get into and, yeah. and and really feel accountable and own. And I, I didn't really have a good plan. In fact, the day that we announced, we dropped the 8K at, and announced that I was going to be leaving in October at Palo. 
My wife had chilled a bottle of champagne for me. I think it was a Tuesday night and, and we're sitting out in the backyard and sipping champagne. And I go, okay, so let's see. Now, starting in October, I can, let's come up with a list of 10 things we want to accomplish as a couple, 10 things you want to accomplish individually, 10 things I want to accomplish individually. And she looked at me and she goes, I just want to get through Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. <laughs> so a plan is necessary, despite what your wife might think. Can I ask you, uh, you don't have to answer this, but maybe more of a personal question, because you've brought your wife up a few times and you're wearing the inside of her mask. A big part of your job today and kind of always has been like being on the road, being with customers, right. being with your team. And you had mentioned like, you're fortunate that a lot of people made you look good. I'd probably put her in that category. She's at the top of the list for sure. It's something that I think about a lot for whoever my wife is one day, poor her. Do you have rules? Do you have things that you do? So I had the guest that I had yesterday was Mike Gamson, the former CRO of LinkedIn and now CEO of Relativity. And he was saying that he would eliminate frustration points in his family that he knew were kind of like booby traps for them. So one was Friday, if he was traveling and he would miss, you know, it delays happen or whatever, he's going to O'Hare. Friday night was when they had social events with his wife. And if he missed that, that was a real frustration point. And he eliminated that by just saying, you know what, I'm never flying back on a Friday. Do you have any of those things? Or do you have any just things, tools in your tool belt, ways that you help just manage this and this is this and how do I feed and nurture both of those things? Does that make sense? And by the yeah, way, you don't have to answer yeah, that. It totally true. does. Listen, I, I've been super proud to have the best wife on the planet. We've been together for 36 years. We've been married for 33. We've got two great kids in their 20s, both girls. And, you know, I think you iterate and learn over time. I think as your career progresses, you become increasingly sucked into more and more work time. And I think over time, I just learned to groom out the things like hockey, for example. I used to try to play hockey a couple times a week, and it would take me out, you know, Tuesday and Thursday nights from seven o'clock until probably midnight. And, you know, I, you just groom those things out when you spend more and more time working. And I found that it was really important for the time that we did have together to be present and to try to ideally dedicate most weekends, although I did travel a lot on Sundays, especially internationally, but to try to dedicate weekends to her and our friends and, and our family. And just when I was there, I'd be present. So if I was jet lagged, having dinner with some friends on a Friday night after being in Germany for the whole week, falling asleep in my soup was sometimes the worst thing that I did, but at least I was there, at least I totally. was you know, paying attention and, and then making the weekend as much about her as possible. Thankfully, she's an avid golfer as well, so we were able to do that. Oh, that's cool, awesome, I appreciate that. So, okay, Palo Alto, you get there in 2012, a month before the IPO, and when you joined, the company hadn't even done, and you knew obviously, like there was an impending IPO, it was yeah. probably part of the allure, and they hadn't even done their first $100 million quarter yet. In fact, it was probably a pretty similar size to F5 when you had joined. You kind of knew the script a little bit. However, the company was doubling year over year. What did you see? What was your evaluation process throughout that time? What was important to you? What were the things that you were looking at? What was exciting? What were the things that made you nervous? The ultimate thing that really drew me to Palo Alto Networks was Mark McLaughlin. Mm. You know, his approach in recruiting me, the time that we spent together, you know, as much as you can in a work environment, I, I fell in love with the guy. He's just an amazing human being. And, but from a tactical standpoint, I saw a lot of the same things that I'd experienced at F5. There was a very large market, a very large total addressable market. The technology that Palo Alto Networks had was very differentiated. And the mindfulness from customers was either almost there or there, mm -hmm. that they needed to do something different. Legacy security technology wasn't working. It was like a conga line of devices that rarely did a good job talking to each other. And Palo Alto Networks had the idea of building all that in software and putting it into a form factor, whether it's a chassis, whether it was a, an appliance later on, whether it just became pure software, that you could build a control plane separate from a device and, and really consolidate a lot of these elements into a single device or single platform. And so same thing with F5. F5, right when I joined in 2004, they came out with a full proxy architecture as opposed to just a dumb load balancer. They took server functionality like rate shaping, IPv4 to IPv6, mm -hmm. translation, all that traffic management stuff, and put it on the 
application delivery controller, and it was very easy to explain, very simple ROI to customers. And you, if you built a machine on the go-to-market side to go out and take advantage of that massive difference, and there was a big TAM out there, you could really build long-term sustained hyper-growth. And that's, I saw that in spades at Palo Alto Networks. So the two marks are stuff of legends in Palo land. You mentioned the way that he recruited you. How'd that look? You know, he actually called me up one day just out of the blue, and I was very fortunate at F5. The business had grown by an order of magnitude in the time that I had there, and I felt really comfortable in my own skin at the time. And thankfully, the stock had done very well, so I was achieving my financial goals. And Mark called me up and said, hey, I'm looking for someone that has been on the journey of a couple hundred million to a couple of billion, and there's four people that I know of. I'm talking to the other three. Would you like to talk about it? And what Mark, I don't think, knew at the time, but a year earlier, I'd met with Ashim Shantna about the CEO job. And I think they were looking at up-and-comers for CEOs versus a sitting CEO, like Mark McLaughlin was at Verisign at the time. And they made the great choice of McLaughlin. But so I had, I had already become enamored a little bit with the story at Palo Alto Networks. Mm. And Mark just swept me off my feet. And we got together to talk about sort of philosophies around building high-performing teams and, and how to do so in that environment, you know, kind of post-2009 environment. It was the privilege of a lifetime working with him and Rene Bonveni and Lee Klarich and Nirzuk and, and the whole team there. So cool. On high-performance teams, what were some of the things that you both had glimmers in your eye about that you were both like, oh yeah, we see the world in very similar ways. Yeah. Well, what I learned at Cisco as a mid-level manager and then certainly applied at F5 was this notion of stage fit. And when you're a couple hundred million dollars in sales, what works as a an SE in the Bay Area, when you have half of the Bay Area as your territory, may not necessarily work next year or the year after that, when two or three years later, you might be the SE at Apple. And I think the same applies to every role in the company, meaning that you want to be able to hire, obviously, people with high integrity, good critical thinking skills, and and above average intellect. Those are my three non-negotiables for hiring. Say those again. Yeah. So character and integrity is always number one. Yeah. Number two is above average IQ. Yeah. And then number three is critical thinking skills, especially for leaders. I mean, critical thinking is one of the highest, uh, most relevant skill set that you can have as a leader. But also you have to have some stage experience. So, you know, being at a company that had been through that journey before, multiple journeys from a couple hundred million to billions, you know, every couple of years, I think you have to do a clean sheet of paper exercise to make sure you get the right people with the right set of experiences and, and competencies in the right roles at the right time. I couldn't agree more, just to be clear. And that applies up and down the chain from zero dollars to billions of dollars of revenue. And a lot of the time, the product, I guess, that I sell at Kleiner now in my job is like our portfolio, you know, like, hey, come work for our portfolio. People reach out to me all the time. I wanna come work here. And I'm like, look, in my opinion, the framing that I have is three chasms that you have to cross to be successful. The first is company size. The second is sales motion. And the third is industry that you come from. In that order, I believe that industry is the least important because it only helps your ramp. If you're really good, I think over time, you're going to be really good. But company size, if you've never been at a 5 million ARR company and you've only been at 100 million, like that's going to be tough fit, like you said. Just like for me, like my sweet spot is like zero to 60. You know, like even when we built the cloud business, it was like from nothing to about 60 million. Figma is like, 100 plus, you know, what am I going to do for Figma right now? You know, I'm going to surround them with people like you that could help them get to that next level. But I think people often overlook fit in lieu of something like brand. You know, they want to come work at Palo Alto when really it's like, I don't know. I completely agree with you. Yeah. You have to be careful because you don't want to disrespect the work that went into getting Palo Alto from zero to a couple hundred million. I mean, Larry Link preceded me in, in the head of sales role. And It's very rare you get someone that goes over all of those stages in the way that Larry did. But at the same time, after you pat yourself on the back, you got to be mindful of what do we need for the next five or the next 10 years and really go to where that puck is going and hire those kinds of competencies. And so experience is always great. 
You can teach somebody about security, or in my case now, you can teach them about data science and advanced analytics. If you're a good salesperson, you're selling a solution to a customer's either exposure or problem, or you're helping them transform their business functionally or digitally. You can do that in any of these areas of technology that we've talked about. A hundred percent. And then the middle piece there, like the sales motion, if you've only done channels forever, going direct might be tricky for you. If you've only done tops down, going bottoms up might be tricky for you. And those are things that, again, I believe that if you're just good, I think you can learn that. I think the hardest one to learn is coming from a world where let's just say you have tons of resources and an overlay organization, and then going to where you have to set your own meetings, doing your own BDR work, being your own SE. That is a different, different beast. No question. So let's fast forward two years later in 2014, you had been there for two years, the company had IPO'd, and that year, 2014, the stock popped like 90%. It was valued at 77X forward earnings forward earnings, not current. And so obviously people are now seeing what you saw at that point is the way that it looks on paper, how it felt in the organization. Like, was that an important year for you and for the business? And was that the moment that you thought like, holy shit, I have a tiger by the yeah. tail here? Or if I'm over-dramatizing. Yeah, it, no, 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 I think, I think it's, it's pretty fair. I think in the first year or so, Setting up appointments was hard. It was like, who the hell is Palo Alto Networks? And by the way, why do I need different security? I've got Symantec or McAfee or, or Cisco, and it's working just fine. Mm. Well, the reality was people didn't know what was happening in their networks. They didn't know adversaries were in there stealing and, and compromising until the visibility to these issues started to pop up. Mm-hmm. And so I think once we started getting our brand out there and building a bit of the snowball principle. We also saw very clearly in 2014 and beyond the public shaming that came with a lot of these large breaches. Mm. And so there was headlines from that day, that part of the year going forward, headlines almost every week where a company was getting breached. And so it was absolutely bursting the bubble that traditional legacy security actually wasn't working. And so people needed to do something different. And all of the work that we had done in the market to build up our relevance, mm-hmm. either hand-to-hand combat with customers or the branding that Rene, our genius CMO, was driving out there on the broader scale, it all sort of compounded and came very clear. And I think we continued to back it up with being able to predict our quarterly results and beat and raise every quarter. So I think it all came together very nicely. And, and and absolutely, we all felt that we were just at the early stage of doing something really important, building a true platform for security that would make the world a safer place and help prevent successful yeah. breaches because nobody was able to do it before. Did you ever miss a quarter? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say which quarter, but you know, we had a quarter. Remember, we were a hardware company mm-hmm. for a long time. There was a quarter where our contract manufacturer had a million dollars worth of products sitting out on the docks ready to be picked up and an unnamed shipping forwarding company didn't send the truck to pick it up. So that was a million dollars that we missed in revenue that quarter that we couldn't book. And that caused us to sort of be within our guided range. And you missed it by a million bucks. Missed it by a million bucks. And for the audience listening, Revenue in a non-software world is recognized when the hardware is actually dropped off at the customer, not picked up or not clicked online with the MSA or whatever. And so you have to actually make sure that the that the freight forwarding company delivered it to the customer. Right. We were there every quarter, McLaughlin, Stefan Tomlinson, our CFO, and myself, all of the executives were there every last day of the quarter until midnight. And then often beyond that to reconcile stuff just because of those dynamics. It was really a function of making sure everything got done and dusted. Yeah, it's funny. I remember, and you know, this is going to age me on the inverse, but when I joined Palo Alto, it was like, I've never done a hardware deal in my life. Like hardware, like I was like, what is this place? Like, are you guys kidding me right now? I'm in a hardware company. And so we would, at least at the beginning in the evident days, which is the company that Palo Alto acquired, we would tie in to the larger core deals and we would have to wait until all the revenue was recognized. So here I am waiting until midnight as well. I got the core guys calling me, all these people. 
up my butt about the yeah. and I'm like, guys, mine's the easy part. And we can book this immediately. <laughs> so, okay, speaking of evident, and we're just making our way through this. This is great. Yeah. So in March of 2018, you bought the company that I worked for. Yep. And you were the executive sponsor on this deal, I believe, right? And it was the largest acquisition that Palo Alto's ever done at the time. Pan was not a very acquisitive company. I think you've maybe done one other up until that point. Is that yeah, fair? Yeah, we actually did one sort of aqua hire and then a smaller deal. And yeah. then Evan, I think, was our third deal. Yeah, it was a big deal for Palo Alto's standards. And I think it was a big deal, not because it's like necessarily because of the size of the acquisition, but because of the signal and symbol that it was and meant to the organization, right. right? Because this was the first time that product is acknowledging that we are not just a hardware business anymore. Absolutely. Is that fair? Yeah, no question. I think also... You can't imagine taking one of our chassis or, or appliances and walking up to a building in Quincy, Washington, above the Columbia River that AWS owns and shoving that into one of their racks. Mm -hmm. that, that cloud security was never going to be uh, delivered with hardware. It was only going to be delivered with software instances. And Evident was really our first foray into real cloud security. Yeah, first of many. So it's funny, Tim Prendergrass, the CEO, yeah. I, was, I was texting with him last night in anticipation of this, trying to get some dirt on you, like, you know, hoping that maybe he was going to say for the dramatic effect of the show that you're this old, stodgy, unimaginative sales leader. And I'll quote this, and I'm not just trying to flatter you that you're the most intellectual and EQ driven sales leader or president that he's ever met in his life. Oh, and so very cool. frustrating because I would have loved to say that you suck, but I will say this. So firsthand experience, and I was part of integrating every subsequent company that Palo Alto bought. So I know what they ended up looking like. This wasn't very smooth. And I'll tell you, like, it wasn't necessarily from a technology perspective. It was from an organization perspective. We were in one BU, then we went to another BU. I mean, you know all the, you know all the hot potatoes that we were playing there. The quotas and comp plans and everything would change, right? It would just constantly change. And then the ultimate battle was the core, the firewall folks, being like, hey, we're good, right? But I think from maybe your perspective, correct me if I'm wrong, and now I think that's proven to be the case, it's like, look, we're not just buying the tech here. Right? And I go back to like the fit of the seller and the organization. We need a new fit. This is not sold through the channel. The year before Evident was bought, I think you or McLaughlin was on stage proud. 100% of our deals are done through the channel. There's a very different organizational muscle and often the themes that we come back to in this show are like change management. And there's a lot of change that had to be managed. I'm just going to ask you, like, did you see that coming? Did you talk about it? Did you feel it? Like, I just love to know that some of the backstory from your perspective. Yeah, well, you know, certainly we felt very clearly that more and more of our customers were putting more and more of their assets in public cloud and mm -hmm. SaaS environments. But we didn't have the horses in product management and engineering to organically build cloud solutions. And it was just a different set of resources that we just didn't have. And we tried to hire them. But to your point, Jubin, we had to, we realized every deal that we acquired, we wanted to stick the landing with the people just as much as the innovation, because we needed people that had proficiency in being able to sell in the cloud and being able to you know, write code that would deliver uh, outcomes for security in the cloud. And so I think it was our first real foray there. And, and frankly, in the early days, we're, there was a lot of experimentation about you know, where these people belong, totally. how they should be managed and motivated. And, you know, there's probably a little, uh, you know, not invented here kind of attitude in, in some parts of uh, the engineering and, and product management organizations that just is natural, especially given the success that we've seen in the prior six years at, at Palo that was by that point in 2018, nobody could deny it. So I think we were still early in the stage of, of learning how to integrate and optimize acquisitions. And, and clearly, you know, they've gotten over that. No kidding, like eight later. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's funny, even at the time, Palo Alto was still trying to figure out, let alone productize it for your customers. Palo Alto hadn't figured out how to, you were on the public cloud, you were on AWS and you couldn't figure it out. I know that because I sold the first deal to Palo Alto and then we're doing an expansion, we're doing more. Next thing you know, you're at 10 accounts, 15 accounts. Yeah. Next thing I know, Tim's like, hey, I want to, come into this meeting yeah. and I'm like, I don't want you in this meeting, you know? <laughs> and then you have, I think folks from your executive team coming in and I'm like, what the hell's going on? I gotta, I gotta get out of here. We're not closing deals anymore. There's something else going on. So anyway, it's amazing to see how that has happened and, and evolved. So the market 
in my opinion, didn't reward that strategy for some time. Bought Palo Alto, then Redlock, then Domisto, then on it, literally another six or seven companies to basically orchestrate the public cloud strategy for the most part. And container security with Twistlock. And I think there's a theme that I want to explore in the Alteryx piece of this that we're about to, but I don't think the market rewarded that strategy until quite recently. And you've seen what's obviously transpired now. And the cloud BU is doing a shitload of business. Like it is killing it. Good for them. And it's in some ways they've overcome the innovators dilemma and cannibalized or are cannibalizing the business that got them to this point. Isn't it amazing to see from- Oh yeah, it's been fantastic. I have one more question on this and then we'll get to the Alteryx stuff. So what do you think is the hardest thing to get right about these acquisitions? I'll throw a few at you. Strategy, price, company cultures, technology. If you were doing this again, I'm sure you're going to be doing this again. What lessons did you learn and what are the areas that you'd really focus on? Gosh, I don't think there's one thing. There's yeah. a thousand things. Yeah. And it's caring for the people and ensuring that the technology gets integrated so that at some point in the future, you know, it's a single pane of glass and it's more than just integration of the code. It's it's just an added element to the platform. But the people have got to be in the right place. They've got to be managed by the right people that that have the competencies to now manage people focused in different areas mm-hmm. than they, they previously were. I learned this at Cisco back in, in the 90s. You know, there's a thousand things that you got to get right from making sure they have business cards on day one the, and laptops with the Cisco domain on it and Cisco email addresses. This, the little things really do matter because it can become, you know, these niggling little details can become a giant pain in the ass. And as fluid as our market is right now for employment, People just aren't tolerating things. Totally. I think that's super fair. Okay. So then you go, you play a bunch of golf, lower your handicap, increase your weight, lower your handicap. Those two things are working in opposite directions. And you join Alteryx. It was founded in 2011, Sapphire, Iconic, Insight, Meritech. I'm sure you knew some of those guys or gals. And when you joined, market cap was like 10-ish billion or so. Can you tell the audience like 30 seconds, like, what do you do? Yeah, Alteryx has taken the hard part of the data and analytics journey, which is sourcing data from from hundreds of different sources and putting it onto a pallet so that you can eventually pipeline it and have advanced analytics and data science be applied against it. It sounds simple, but it's not, right? Reconciling, mangling, prepping all of that data and blending it so that it can be pipelined is, is actually really difficult to do. And it's even more difficult for non-Python developers or simple data analysts to do. And I think what what Alteryx has done is put it into a very familiar set of dragging and dropping icons, drop-down menus, very simple uh, user interface that can be taught with a few days of training Mm -hmm. and can turn somebody who might have had some uh, Excel data skills into a citizen data scientist. And that's non-trivial. And I think they won the hearts and minds of the analysts over the last 20 years in spades, you know, now we have 300,000 active community members that are hitting up our community site almost every day and sharing things like workflows. You might have two competing oil companies that are sharing a workflow that does an analysis on pay equity by gender. So really, it's an incredible spirit. I think as a board member, I attended one of the Inspire events, which was a big user conference, and I saw people get up and talk about their journey and talk about Alteryx tattoos and maybe naming their kids Alteryx. But it wasn't until I started to see it every day and hear it every day from customers whose lives have changed because of what the software has done for their professional life and in turn, what it's done for their personal lives, right? And it's really helped them upskill themselves. And in this day and age, I remember walking past any CFO's office and you can see the curvature of the earth over these cubes, the van list that would sit outside the CFO's office and manually crunch spreadsheets and try to build workflows. And, and the work is mind-numbingly hard, but monotonous. And so taking them and turning them into a bit of a data ninja, mm-hmm. it become a really important thing. So I think the joy of being part of the team now at Alteryx and being able to take that innovation and really modernize it so that we can reduce 
or eliminate the friction that we may have put up over the years in, in terms of how someone can get to use our innovation. I think it's a really, really fun opportunity. And, and I think I'll look back on this in a few years and say that it was the opportunity of a lifetime. Maybe actually hang it up this time around? Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. I'll tell you what really jazzed me up for this was, this was not that long ago, I think a few weeks ago, I'm a big F1 fan, and Alteryx recently sponsored the McLaren car. And McLaren, maybe in the history of the company, finished in P1 and 2. They finished first and second. First of all, how cool was that? It was amazing at Monza. And, Were you and, there? No, I wasn't there, but I, I was actually up early watching. What, what time was that on? Like four? Five o'clock. You must have been screaming at your TV. Oh, my God. It was incredible. <laughs> my wife was not happy, but, but it was amazing. And that was also the weekend that we had the enlarged logo on the livery of the car, of the McLaren car. Right. So... I mean, we got millions and millions of eyeballs. That's amazing. Random question, because I, I think Daniel Ricardo is the man, the driver. Did you, as the CEO, or does your team, do you talk to the drivers too to make sure that they are good ambassadors for the company? I don't know why yeah. I ask. I'm just super curious. You know, we, we don't talk to the drivers. In Daniel's case, we're actually gonna, working on a commercial right now that we'll cool. be broadcasting on ESPN and, and CNBC. It stars a little snippet of Daniel at the end. So there, there has been some interaction there. But definitely is with the CEO, Zach Brown. He was actually at our campus last weekend in uh, Irvine. We did a town hall with him and we had, you know, 100 people show up in a socially distant cool way. Uh, and And he just... He just did an amazing job of talking about how data science and analytics uh, plays a really important role for McLaren in everything that they do. That's so cool. So you joined in October as CEO. Okay, let me just frame this up for the audience a little bit. You joined, stock price was at 140 bucks. This company's ripping, okay? And a year later, it's at 70 bucks. This is your first CEO job. You know, you're ready to go. This is it. You're obviously a competitive guy, and I was putting myself in your shoes, okay? Now, recently, it just popped really nicely because of a UiPath partnership, congratulations. And what it reminded me of was Palo Alto Networks, the strategy that they had around the cloud. And I think Bezos does a really nice job summarizing this, which he says that their competitive advantage at Amazon, there's a picture of him on the wall behind you, is being willing to be misunderstood longer than others. And he says that the biggest competitive advantage that Amazon has is using time horizons that others are unwilling to use, is just being more long-term oriented. And I think Palo Alto did that. I think you had foresight there. And I think you're about to do the same thing here. There's some things that I see in here that I'm like, I know what this is. Launching a cloud offering, that's gonna be better revenue in some cases or different types of revenue that's gonna be rewarded by the street in a, more, a better way. Going from three to one year deals, right? Where before it was, paid up front, you take that revenue off. But again, when you go to one-year deals, you don't get to book that revenue up front, but the margins are higher. It's better for the business in the long run. That only happens if you can get the right revenue, right? You have to get cloud subscription-based revenue in order to be able to do that. Management changes, you come. So like all these things are kind of rocking the boat. And by the way, all of this stuff that's happening now predate, like these were all predating, like you happened to come in and then the quarters were already baked at that point. And then there was a decision in the business to go down markets. And I think you've reversed that decision and are kind of, you can use the UI path as a shining example of going back up market and then deciding, again, this playbook is familiar, to use the channel to support some of the SMB customers so you can have lift and leverage there. How did that feel? You know, I've always dreamed of, of being the CEO and I've never in my dreams imagined, like I imagine I step in and then a year later it's flying to the moon, you yeah. know? I don't know. I, I just wanted your perspective well, on you, that. You know, listen, I think the company was a great company, built great software, but I think the pandemic exposed some strategic kind of errors that we made in maybe orienting a little bit too much to mid-market and SMB right before the pandemic. And of course, mid-market and SMB basically was frozen. So we, we hired close to 100 people and many of them first jobs in their careers right out of school and pointed them at these, at this market that just went away. At the same time, I think we had a great innovation, but if you wanted to use it last year, you better have Windows because totally. that's all it ran on. Totally. And so I felt there were opportunities to do a lot and it was a lot of transformation, just like many of our customers are experiencing a lot of transformation right now. Almost every company, every government I know is in the midst of, of quite a bit of transformation. But I felt that we had to do it all very quickly, mm -hmm. which meant 
a lot of change uh, at the same time. So, you know, first thing I did at the beginning of the fiscal year was take down expectations because they were way out of whack. The which, guidance that you gave the street. Yeah, for yep. the full fiscal year, we often that's what a, a, the new CEO and you started will do. October. Is well, that right? no, I August. started in October and we finished up the previous fiscal year. Right. But then on the Q1 earnings. So within like two or three months, you're yeah. redialing this stuff all back up. Like by the time you've even had a chance to get under the hood of the car. Right. And then, you know, recognizing that, you know, a lot of times transformation begins with leadership and, and we had a lot of really good people, but many of them were in the biggest jobs of their careers and hadn't seen a global business. Right? They hadn't seen the 400 million to a billion or more journey. The fit wasn't perfect. It wasn't ideal. And, yeah. and then overlay the pandemic on top of that. Yeah. It was just a tremendous amount of change for a lot of people. And so I think for investors, I've always believed in, like my friend and former boss, Mark McLaughlin did, of being very transparent with people and said, we're going to do all of this. It's going to take us a year. 2021 will be the year of transformation. And I think we're doing it fast because time is our enemy. Yeah. This market's moving extremely fast. And to the victor goes the spoils. And I you know, articulated what the future state would look like, back end in the cloud, cloud availability for everything that we do, which would really eliminate a lot of friction that just having a heavy client imposed on customers. And then we sold to analysts in the past. We said, uh, hey, Jubin, thanks for downloading a free trial version. Here's two extra copies. Go tell two friends. And we had many instances of beautifully curated, very strategic initiatives with customers. We just didn't teach that as a discipline across the globe. And I think we've tried to do a better job there. So I think doing all of that when you're having to lead instead of uh, an elevator rides or walks to the cafeteria, you're leading you know, on the other side of a computer. I think it was a lot of change for a lot of people. So, but that's fine. I, I care more than anything else. I care about the outcomes for the people that are working on my team, if, if they're not happy with what we're doing, then they're better suited to go find something else. And yeah. I've never had a hard time attracting people to come for a really important mission. Like yeah. What we do for our customers, it really, really matters to them and it really matters to their businesses. So attracting people to come and go make that happen, selling high and selling business outcomes it's one of the few things I'll say that I've, I've been able to do pretty well. Yeah, I'd say so. I've seen it. So when you join Alteryx and you think about the new organization and what does it look like, what does leveling that organization up mean to you? How do you think about that? What is a system that you can do? What are the scalable things? And then what are like unscalable things that you have to do? Right. Well, listen, we've had to move our business from founder-led to founder-inspired and a lot of operational rigor in an operating framework that provides real clarity to everyone in the organization, what they're doing and how that's going to help us achieve, A, our fiscal year plan and B, the strategic imperatives that we need to do to get to our fiscal year plan. And so that was new for a lot of people. This was your favorite uncle's company before. And boy, did they ever make great software, but it was definitely a lot more discipline and rigor. And for me, that's my comfort zone is, is having a weekly, monthly, and quarterly cadence around everything that we do. OKRs for engineers, just like there's OKRs for, for salespeople to make sure that they're doing the work that's necessary to make our customers as successful and happy as possible. What do you think a great relationship looks like between a president or a CRO and a CEO? And now that you sit on this side, and you had what I would probably call a great relationship between CRO or president and, and Mark McLaughlin. Has your perspective changed at all being on this side of the table or does great still look like great? And what is that? In almost every role, every boss I've had, there's things that they do really well and things that, that I can compliment them by doing really well that maybe they can't do by themselves. And Mark was always very humble in his approach. He'd never really been a salesperson or a sales leader. And he left the sausage making up to me. He certainly would opine and chip in and help. But in terms of how we built the cadence and operating framework, he really left that up to me. And I think, so you have to have trust and belief in that person. And our CRO now, Paula Hansen, is absolutely has my trust. She's got competencies and skills that, that I could only wish for in terms of how to lead people and motivate them. She's exceptional. And so... 
There's a lot that I leave to her. She asks me for advice a lot, just like I did with Mark McLaughlin. But, you know, I found that going from president to a, a CEO wasn't too dissimilar to almost any leveling up change I'd made in really? the past. Yeah, I remember as a sales guy thinking, my sales manager is a, you know, I can do that job in a heartbeat. And then you get promoted one day and you realize, I got to do that in this job, <laughs> right? So good leaders will obfuscate some of the stuff that you don't need to see from you just to help keep you screwed down and doing your job well. And as a CEO, you see everything and you hear everything. All the data points come into you and there's never really a dull moment. And there's always something that you need to make a call on. How hard is it for you? Because generally speaking, at least in the revenue organization, I'll say, you know, the answers to the tests. And when there's up and comers, people that report to you, those that are in the revenue organization, you've done this. That's part of the reason why you're here. Do you have an instinct that you have to fight to let those that have those competencies make some mistakes sometimes? I'm too much of a control freak. I'd be helicopter mom about it. You know, I'd be all over them. No, 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 no. do this. I don't know. How do you think about that? Uh, you know, I think 20 years ago, I thought being a leader meant telling people what to do because I'd had some bosses that would tell me what to do. And I also thought, you know, as an immature man in my 30s, I thought that asking for help was a sign of weakness. And it wasn't until I got a chance to spend time around world-class CEOs like John Chambers at Cisco or, or Dan Warmanhoven, who I've gotten to know personally even before he, he became a board member at Palo Alto Networks. People like this, they, they just had a whole different frame of mind around what success looked like. And it, you know, success was orchestrating or facilitating the output of others. And that doesn't mean telling what to do. That means pulling them together and getting them to deliver something that they wouldn't be able to do without you, but you can't answer every question for them or tell them what to do because they've got to learn from failures. And so I think once I grokked on that, my career really accelerated. I really became very comfortable to see others succeed on my team without me taking a victory lap. I was taking a victory lap in my mind because I was super happy for them. And I cared really deeply about their careers, so much so that I tried to become a better and better coach over time so that I could help them get better, realizing that their success would lead to my success. If there's one or two things that you wish you had done to better prepare yourself, maybe put another way, if you're the audience listening and you're the CRO or president or even SDR that wants to be the CEO, maybe we could start with CRO or president. What are some things that you maybe didn't do or you did do that worked well or that you wish you had done that would kind of get you ready for this gig? Well, as a CRO, I was so extraordinarily focused on driving the top line mm -hmm. that even in the early days, as we would go around the table listening to what's going on in marketing that didn't have anything to do with me or what was going on in product and engineering that was maybe farther out things that had to do with me, I sort of just didn't really pay attention. And I didn't get as involved and understand their challenges of leading people to write code and to build hardware or, or build software. And so that was an area that Mark really reinforced with me. I, I could see how deeply he understood the technology and how deeply he understood product marketing just from his background. So I really started to pay attention and tried to build relationships around the table as peers to look for areas over and above what I had to do as CRO to try to help them be successful. And oftentimes it was you know, bringing their people out to customers as much as possible so that they could sort of understand what it's like to walk a mile in an SE's shoes or a salesperson's shoes. And beyond that, the only thing I, I think I look back on and, and regret was not moving faster, right? The older you get, I'm getting getting into my late into my 50s, the more I realize time is your enemy. And technology now is moving at such an incredible pace that that you can't have a lackadaisical approach to change management and implementing the things that you're going to need to do to be relevant and more relevant in the future. And that's something I've applied to many people's chagrin at, at Alteryx. Maybe I wasn't great at communicating that, but I think where we are now with the leadership team we have at Alteryx now, it's, it's an exceptionally good leadership team. The people that are there, we're, we're finishing each other's sentences. And I think I've always believed in Monday afternoon 
executive operations, an hour and a half, two hour meeting where you go around the table and literally everyone talks about what's going on in their world this week, this month, this quarter, this year. So there's no ambiguity about what engineering has got going for the next quarter or next two quarters so that you really understand each of the, the functional areas as well as possible so that you can operate as a better team member. Well, that's a great place for us to end it. I am genuinely very excited to see what you and your team do. I, I can't wait to watch. I run these things all the same way. The first is, what does the word grit mean to you? To me, I think grit is mega important to me. It's having the thoughtfulness and focus to be able to chase your dreams, no matter how many times you fall down and fail, or no matter how many people put you down, is just continue to be focused on chasing your dreams. And then do so in a way that motivates and inspires others. And there's a lot of words there, but to me, it comes from having a chip on my shoulder of maybe being different than the average person in Canada, having a father and a mom that, that had a funny accents and maybe living in the, in the poorer part of town forced me to think this way. I felt the same way playing hockey. I was always the first guy out there and, and the last guy off the ice, just working my butt off to try to get better and be a better teammate. And I think grit is mega important. Are you hiring? And if so, what are you hiring for? Any key roles that you want to shout out? I don't know if you can play favorites in the organization. So yeah, what are you hiring for? And what's the best way to get a hold of you if so? I'm pretty responsive on LinkedIn. And, you know, my friends and family have got my mobile number. I'm pretty responsive by text, email, same thing. I've got, uh, thankfully, a couple of people, including myself, watching my inbox so that I can try to stay up to speed on that. We're hiring everywhere. You know, we're looking for people on the product management and engineering side that have been through the journey before from premise, multi-license in the wild to cloud, ultimately multi-tenant SaaS type of opportunities. Marketing, same thing. People that can think big about branding and, and marketing and driving demand in, in, in a modern way. And on the sales side, we'll always be hiring salespeople. This is a massive TAM that's today measured in the tens of billions of dollars, and it's only going to get bigger. So I, I think once we get to the other side of this transformation, we'll have a business that will crank out innovation or a business that can integrate inorganic innovation in a world-class way. And, and we'll give our salespeople and our marketers more to sell and more to market, more arrows in their quiver. Because I do think customers like insecurity and, and infrastructure, they want fewer vendors, less complexity, more automation, they want platforms. And I think we have the permission to build at Alteryx as a platform in this really important space. And so we're hiring people these days that are coming from billion dollar plus companies, more often than not, they're coming with 15 plus years of experience. And so if you think you- uh, If you fit the bill, yeah, reach out. Reach out, please do. Mark, I appreciate you, thank you. Yeah, Juven, thank you very much, really your pleasure. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes with CROs from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.